Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, as we've already heard, this is the last sermon in the book of Isaiah. And last week I said that if I were writing Isaiah, um, I would have ended it a chapter earlier. And uh, obviously I was joking about that until I read this week's passage. And then I thought, you know, maybe, maybe I was right about that. Maybe he should have stopped at 65. But, um, but that's why I didn't write Isaiah. That's why Isaiah wrote Isaiah, because he knew what he was doing. Um, it's an odd thing that you have the most hopeful, uh, Christ-centered book of the Old Testament. Almost all scholars would agree that Isaiah is, is that, the most hopeful book of the Old Testament. And it ends with, their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Uh, that was not a mistake. Isaiah knew what he was doing. That was not a later editor that added that in there. That was part of his whole plan. He thought about this book probably most of his life. Probably spent time going back over it his whole life. And that's how he chose to end it. So why? In such a hopeful book with such disturbing images of judgment. It's actually the image uh, that, that Jesus draws from when he's describing uh, hell. That's the image he draws from. And I think that Isaiah would say um, that there can be no real hope without a judgment. I think that's how he would answer that question. Um, given what he saw, given what he knew about life, he knows that to get to the new heavens and new earth, which was last week, you've got to go through a judgment. That There's no way this world is going to transition to a perfect world without this purification of fire in between. There's no way that could happen. And so a real hope that is robust and deep and not superficial has got to take justice into account. And therefore, the terrible state of things that we live with every day, um, something's got to happen with that. There's got to be a final reckoning with that. And uh, otherwise, you're just dealing with um, you know, superficial optimism or you're kind of pretending that things are okay and they're not okay. It would be like a hallmark kind of hope if that's what Isaiah was about, but that's not what he's about. He's about the real thing, the gritty uh, hope in the midst of deep, deep darkness. And so I want to look at the judgment. We've got to look at judgment. It's it's an unpopular subject for Americans. By the way, it's not unpopular in other parts of the world. Um, It's hard for us culturally, but it's not hard uh, in other places in the world. It's very normal. They wouldn't even flinch at this passage. Uh, for us, it's difficult. So I want to look at judgment first, and then I want to look at hope. That, that this hope that is after, on the other side, on the far side of the judgment. So first of all, uh, verse 15, the judgment is right there. Uh, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind. It's like a tornado. Uh, to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Now the way that... Uh, any story ends, movie or book, uh, tells you a lot about the story. So if you've seen the movie No Country for Old Men, there's a spoiler here, but uh, if you've seen that movie, uh, the bad guy goes unpunished. And it's a little bit disturbing. And he's on the loose at the end of the movie, and justice is not done. Whereas if you see any superhero movie, um, Wonder Woman was the recent one that I saw, of course the bad guy is always defeated, um, and justice is always done. And, and if the, the first ending with uh, No Country for Old Men, it's kind of morally nihilistic. Um, 
It kind of leaves you unsettled because you feel like justice should prevail and it doesn't prevail. Whereas the second one is morally very satisfying. Wonder Woman. And so for the universe to be a good story, I would submit, it's got to end with judgment. Or else it's a bad story. And it's not a bad story. And so Roy Moore, we've been hearing about in the press lately, and, and Hugh Hefner, and uh, Harvey Weinstein, and Louis C.K., and the neo-Nazis, and the person that was selling body parts of babies that was caught on film, those people, uh, they, that must be accounted for. I'm not saying anything about the individuals themselves, but their deeds have got to be accounted for. That is not going to be left alone. And if the Nazi war criminals that escaped to Argentina, and there were many of them, many of the, the, the SS, um, many of the high-ranking uh, men who are in the Reich, a lot of them got away. A lot of them got to Argentina. And if, and if they get away with that, ultimately, if that's how it ends for them, um, then I would say this is not a morally serious universe that we live in. It's just not. If that's how it ends for them, if they're on a beach in Argentina and they die in peace with their family around them, uh, this is not a morally serious universe. And, and Isaiah says um, that it is a morally serious universe. I know their works, verse 18, and I know their thoughts. So the judgment is not simply on what the people do outwardly. Um, that's why human judgment is never quite right. Um, even the best judge and the best justice system in the world um, they cannot figure out what people are thinking. Even Solomon, as great a judge as he was, could not get into the minds of the people that he's judging. But on this judgment, uh, no one will get away with anything. Every thought will be taken into account. In Isaiah thirty-three fourteen, he said, Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? He's talking about God. Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? what he's saying there is that God is this white-hot nuclear opposition to evil, and he will never, ever tolerate or morally compromise at all. And C.S. Lewis says that the being behind the universe, C.S. Lewis, uh, the being behind the universe is intensely interested in right conduct, in fair play and unselfishness, in courage, good faith, Honesty and truthfulness. Goodness is not indulgent or soft or sympathetic. It is as hard as nails. There is no sense asking it to make allowances for you or to let you off, just as there is no sense in asking the multiplication table to let you off when you do your sums wrong. The law is exacting. Now, there is mercy later on, but you've got to start out with the law. And, and goodness itself... And like he says, uh, Isaiah says, God is, uh, is fire. He's purifying morally. And um, I think that this blazing moral purity is part of God's glory. It is part of his uh, luminosity and beauty and brilliance that he's like this. And it says in verse 18 that the nations are going to come. And he lists all these nations. And those nations are going to all come and they're going to see his glory. And part of his glory is this uh, universe with a final reckoning. That's part of his glory, that he's a great judge. And that right and wrong have eternal consequences. That's part of his glory. And so in, um, in the, the final uh, system of things, the, the justice system is not broken. And um, it is not biased against people of certain races. It's not biased against the poor. 
as all justice systems are, uh, it is not going to be that way. And we're all glad, and the nations long for that. And there's not going to be any more uh, exploitation of weak nations by strong nations who come in and take all their resources. And that happens all the time. The strong nation comes in, take all the resources of the weak nation, leave the people in poverty, all the good stuff goes to the strong country. That's not going to happen anymore. God's not going to let that keep happening. And I want that to be true. I think we all want that to be true. And so if you don't want judgment, you're kind of stuck in this bind. How are you going to have that kind of thing happen and not have a judgment? So much of the political angst in our country right now, um, which is justifiable, it comes down to this longing. And, and sadly, many people do not have a horizon line past death. And so it's all now. And that's why there's so much anger and hostility and venom. Because all we can see is here and now. And we're not thinking about beyond death. And you know, I know some people who look at uh, Christianity um, and they say, you know, that, that stuff about the judgment that you're talking about right now, the, this stuff about the last judgment, that's what's wrong with religion. That's why there are so many wars. Because people become vindictive and they become violent when they think about judgment. A lot of people say that kind of thing. I've, I've read stuff like that. I've heard people say that to me. But I would say it's exactly the opposite. I would say that if you don't have a judgment, then you're going to take justice into your own hands. And so I would say that the only way to not be vindictive, to not be violent, the only way to forgive and to release anger and contempt and resentment, the only way you're going to do that is if you believe in a judgment. And it's not in your hands. And it is in very capable hands to take care of everything. Otherwise, you're going to be a vigilante. You're going to be like Spider-Man, who's, who's got to patrol New York City, because the justice system is broken. If, if the police uh, and the judges in New York City were doing their job, there would be no need for Spider-Man. The only reason he's there is because he's got to take justice into his own hands. Same with Batman. Um, if you don't lean into cosmic judgment, is what I'm saying. If you don't kind of lean into that and put your weight in that, in this cosmic, final, perfect judgment, you're going to be vindictive in some way. Even if you theoretically believe it's there, if you don't lean into it and put your weight on that, I think it's going to make you need to take justice into your own hands. And I know this because Romans 12, 19, which is written by Paul the Apostle, who was terribly abused, who was beaten again and again and again and flogged for things he did not do. Paul says to the Romans, who are also being mistreated, they're right there with Nero, persecuting Nero, Paul says, beloved, he says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. And listen to the reason why. This is so strange. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. And you would never think that forgiveness would be tied to wrath. But that's exactly what Paul's saying. Never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. Now, a lot of times people read that, like, vengeance is mine. You know, I will repay. And it's more like, no, vengeance, it's mine. I've got that. I'm going to repay that. I've got that in my hands. You don't need to do that. And then Paul says after that, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Again, you're not going to have the ethic of, uh, of, of, of love of neighbor, of love of enemy. You're not going to have that ethic if you don't have any sense of, of divine judgment. And so I would say if you're full of anger and resentment towards someone right now, meditate on this. Like, lean into this, this final judgment. 
And I, having said that, I do admit it's very hard to do. That we, uh, you and I were raised in a very soft and indulgent culture, and that was not our fault. We were raised in a culture that was very therapeutic, where the word punish is, you know, is, is instinctively a negative word. We say uh, rehab instead of punish, right? You go to prison not to be punished, but to be rehabilitated. Um, and I'm not saying I'm against rehabilitation, but, but the word punish has this negative feeling to most Americans. And so the terrorists who drive the trucks into the crowds are described as sick. Not evil, uh, but sick. And uh, the, the guy in Texas, Devin Kelly, um, who shot into that church, his wife, his ex-wife said that he had a lot of demons. You hear that language a lot. In other words, uh, they've got a lot of mental health issues. Not even problems, but issues. And the New York Times ran an article, which I was so proud of. Uh, it was called um, The Sham of Harvey Weinstein's Rehab. The Harvey Weinstein, rehab? He's just, he's just violated all these women, and now he's talking about rehab? And it says, here's a quote from the author. Harvey Weinstein is immersed in what has been described as rehab. In a self-pitying statement, he vowed to embark on a journey to conquer my demons. This is an insult to victims, to legitimate psychiatry, and to the role that choices and values play. Free will is removed. Responsibility is expunged. Guilt is assuaged. There are no bad characters, just bad conditions. Now, Isaiah did not live in this culture. Isaiah did not live in a soft culture. His moral outrage was not about uh, an insensitive tweet or uh, a microaggression or a slight at Thanksgiving dinner. His culture that he grew up in was Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, invading and annihilating his country. And so uh, the soldiers, the Hebrew soldiers would have been beheaded, their, their skulls fixed to spikes on the city wall just to let everybody know who was really in charge and women would be dragged away and used as slaves and children would be slaughtered. I mean, this is what Isaiah was was living amongst. And so for him, judgment is good news. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, judgment is always good news because Babylon needed to be judged. Now, having said that, one last thing about judgment before I get to hope. The oddest thing about the judgment here um, is that the focus of Isaiah's judgment in this passage, which is God's passage, the focus is not on Babylon. He doesn't doesn't have anything to say about Babylon. Not a single word about the the evil empire out there. Uh, Look at the focus of the judgment here. Who is he he talking to? He's talking to his people. Uh, God is always much harsher on his own communities than the outside world. So often the church is talking about them out there and just kind of leave themselves alone. But, but in this passage, uh, God is much more concerned about his own people. And I think the reason is because his people are carrying the vaccine that would save the world if they would just, <clears throat> if they would just share it. They have the, the cure to the spiritual cancer that's taking over the globe, and yet God's people won't share it, God's people hide it. Uh, Their mission is to declare God's glory among the nations, verse 19. That's the mission of God's people. It always is. It was then. It is still now to declare God's glory. And yet what they're doing instead in verse 17 is that they're basically into all these pagan rituals. It's the empire's form of worship. They're imitating the Babylonians, the Canaanites, uh, sanctifying themselves, purifying themselves in their gardens, eating pig's flesh and mice. We don't know what all those things are, but it's clearly an imitation 
of the religion around them. And so instead of showing the glory of God, <clears throat> instead of doing that, they're basically worshiping the same gods of the people around them. They're just imitating their ways. And they're, 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 they're dealing with gods that are made up and fictional and figments of their imagination that are manipulative and immoral, where you make deals with them and they have no grace. They demand sacrifice without any hope of mercy. Uh, they're vending machine gods. And, and so God is looking at his people interacting with those, this false worship, and that's what makes God so upset. Um, misrepresenting him, his glory, minimizing his glory, obscuring his glory, because people, again, like I said earlier, are, they are desperately sick from lack of glory, from a lack of understanding of God's glory. And so um, this idea of this perfect judge with overflowing mercy is lacking and people get anemic and lethargic and hopeless. And so our job is to declare the glory of God among the nations. To uphold the true God of judgment. Because without that, I think the world becomes morally just a morass. Kind of, again, nihilistic, meaningless. You just let that stuff go. And, or otherwise, if all you emphasize is judgment and not mercy, then it's just like we're on death row or condemned. But Isaiah says, no, there is hope. There is hope that um, God's perfect judgment and his mercy will both be shown to be glorious. That his glory will be shown among the nations. And that's what I want to look at now. The the hope. We've looked at the judgment and now we look at the hope. And see that you you need the judgment otherwise the university is morally morally meaningless. But you also need the hope otherwise you're facing your own death sentence. And that's where, this, uh, that's where the hope comes in. There's this great sign. And it's kind of the great mystery of the passage and also the great comfort of the passage. Um, verse 19. I will set a sign among them. Uh, a sign is the same word that's often used for a sacrament. It's um, something, some outward, uh, visible thing that is... Uh, Standing there, representing something much deeper, uh, much bigger, something divine, something invisible, undetectable. The, the sign is the hope of the passage, whatever the sign is. And hopefully you're thinking to yourself right now, uh, I wonder what that sign is. Well, one thing you can say about the sign is, look at verse 16. <clears throat> Again, uh, by fire the Lord will enter into judgment. Uh, it's a sign of judgment. Whatever the sign he's talking about is, it is judgment. It's a sign of God's judgment on the world. But then number two in verse 18, it's a judgment of all nations and tongues. It is a total universal cosmic judgment, uh, you know, presumably in the future. But it's not in the future because in verse 19, it says that God will send the survivors of the judgment to the nations. So in some sense, this judgment that this sign stands for has already happened. In the past. And that God has sent out survivors of that judgment into the world to declare his glory. So now, hopefully, you're putting this together in your mind and thinking, <clears throat> well, what is some sign that has happened in the past that is a demonstration of God's perfect cosmic judgment? In some ways, the judgment day happening in the past instead of just in the future. There's some sign where God's glory of his mercy and his justice is all shown, um, what is this sign? What is this judgment he's talking about? And I, and I think that many of you um, have already thought of this, that 
The judgment is what happened uh, in 33 AD. That, that's a, it's a judgment that happened 2,000 years ago. There was a kind of a day of the Lord where the darkness came over the land, there was an earthquake, and there was a judgment that occurred in 33 AD. Not just on one person, but there was a kind of a judgment that happened on many, many people at that moment. And the sign of that judgment, of course, is, uh, is the cross, what Christians describe as the cross, which is basically uh, these two uh, six-foot beams. One of them was, um, was, was in the ground at all times. So it was jammed into the ground outside of Jerusalem on this big rock, Golgotha, constantly sitting there. It's fixed in the ground, a six-foot-tall beam. And then the, the prisoner would come up on the other one, be a horizontal beam, you would lock into that one, and then you would tie the prisoner up and, of course, nail his hands, his wrists into the, into the horizontal beam, his, his um, ankles into the vertical beam. That's the sign. The sign is the crucifixion of Jesus, of Nazareth, this carpenter, this uh, rabbi. And uh, he hung there and darkness came over the land. And uh, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was like this judgment was happening. It was like the final judgment was already happening right there in 33 AD with the judgment of Christ. The whole earth in some ways was judged and punished right there. And that, um, that is the glory of God. That's where we see both his judgment and his mercy at that moment. And, and you can believe in a morally serious universe with a perfect judge and you can have hope and not be condemned. And not feel condemned, which is this amazing combination that you only get with the gospel. Both of those things, if you know that you are already judged at the cross. That essentially it was you there with Christ hanging on the cross, and that was your judgment. And so you were crucified with Christ, as Paul says. And it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And so in some ways, for a Christian, we say our judgment day has already passed. And it happened on the moment when Christ said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And was damned and was sent to hell. Um, That's, for a Christian, our judgment day. And that's the sign. And having that sign, I can still believe in a world of justice to the very core, high-intensity justice, and still have hope. I can work for justice without being condemned and without being a hypocrite and saying the judgment is out there and not in here. See, that's, that's this amazing combination. Uh, the judgment is not superficial. Romans 2.16 says God will judge men's secrets. Hebrews 4.12 says he will judge our inmost thoughts and desires. This is not a superficial judgment that's coming. And yet I can still have hope. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. famously said that the, the moral arc of the universe is long. The moral arc is long and it bends towards justice. And the only way I think that he uh, or anyone could tirelessly work for justice and passionately believe that it will prevail and not feel condemned, right, and not, and not be a hypocrite and act like the, the problem's out there and not here, the only way you can do that and have this hope is that sign, which he believed in deeply, is to be a survivor of the last judgment. Now, here and now. Otherwise, you're going to minimize justice or you're going to lose hope. 
And you say, I am a survivor of the sign of the last judgment. I've been sent out to the world to declare the glory of God and his perfect mercy and his perfect justice. I'll end with this. Uh, A friend of mine, he uh, recently recommended a book to me with this fascinating title, uh, Mission at Nuremberg, an American Army Chaplain and the Trial of the Nazis. And I I bought it recently. I haven't read it yet. Um, It's up next after Narnia. I'm reading Narnia right now. Then I get to Nuremberg. So, you know, going from a children's uh, fun book to Mission at Nuremberg. But I did read, uh, I talked to my friend about it. I also went to the Huffington Post, looked at their book review. Interesting source here. Uh, They actually loved it, which I thought was, that said a lot about the book. So uh, in the book review, uh, the the writer for the Huffington Post said, uh, he was a minister to monsters. That's how it begins. He was a minister to monsters. Henry Gorecki, the unassuming Lutheran pastor from Missouri, shepherded 11 of the most notorious Nazis to the gallows. He was put in charge by the uh, Allied troops of being a minister to these 11 hideous monsters who had been responsible for the slaughter of millions. And he was told to go and to minister to them while they await their judgment. And it went on to say that Gorecki had recently been to the, to the concentration camp of Dachau. So he's not going into this naively. I mean, he knows what these men deserve. And yet he kept offering grace after grace, after grace, to these men. And uh, most of them rejected it, but there were four that accepted it. And so Gorecki regularly served them the bread and the wine, the body of Christ for you, the blood of Christ for you. Can you imagine that, doing that for these men? And on the day of the, uh, the execution of these four uh, they asked him to uh, walk up the 13 steps to the gallows, to the top, and he did. And he recited this bedtime prayer uh, for Lutheran children as they fell to their death. And many of you know this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Watch over me from heaven above. Jesus, keep me in your love. In other words, he was telling them, you're, you're being punished rightly on earth right now. But when you die, you're not going to face a judgment. You've already been judged with Christ. And you can imagine that Gorecki was hated uh, by many, many people. Many Holocaust survivors hated this man, and they thought he cared nothing for justice. And even the author of the book, the guy who wrote the book, uh, in the interview, he said, um, these monsters clearly did not have anyone's spiritual welfare in mind when they were murdering six million Jews. So why provide them with chaplains to see to their spiritual comfort? It's a great question. Why should we comfort those most deserving of punishment with assurance of pardon, regular, continuous assurance of pardon? But that leads to an even greater question, which is why should God offer you any assurance of pardon? Because if he's judging down to the thoughts and your desires, if you're judging at that level, then maybe there's not that much of a difference between us. And maybe we're similar 
to Hermann Goering and Albert Speer and Wilhelm Keitel. There's no hope for those men and there's no hope for me. I firmly believe that. And um, 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, He will bring our darkest secrets to light and reveal our private motives. Now, just yesterday, there were so many things, uh, so many motives, uh, secrets that were so wrong. And I would just say, without the sign, there is no hope. But with the sign, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Watch over me from heaven above. Jesus, keep me in your love. And here we see, um, in some ways, a sign of the sign. This is a sacrament. It's a symbol of that horrible crucifix that I described earlier. And in this sacrament, we are seeing both the justice of God and the mercy of God, the glory of God. And by taking this supper, if you take this supper, what you're saying is that... uh, my sins were punished, and I was judged back in 33 AD when, when Christ did this for me. And so I have an absolutely clean conscience, and I am clear, and there will never be any judgment for me. It's an amazingly bold statement. It's almost an arrogant statement, except that we believe in this humble man that did it for us. So on the night he was betrayed... Our Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it because this is my body broken for you. In the same way he